What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chap. This is episode number 70. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. How's it going, dude? Maybe just once you're going to introduce somebody else and just blow everyone's mind. It's going to be really funny when you do. You'll be like, as unusual, and it's not me. Someday. Someday it'll happen, but today is not the day. Are you telling me you're going to leave the show or that you'd have a a conflict or something and we'd have to find (laughs) a a random guest co-host? You know how LSV always makes that joke about leaving LR like partway through an episode or something like that? I'm not going to do that. Look, we're not that much of a ripoff of LR. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that it would have a a much bigger impact on LR given that it's like Marshall's entire income stream or close to it or something. Like this is just a side gig for us. So Yeah, that's true. Can you believe we, we take time? out of our lives to do this it's pretty dope we would be taking time out of our lives to talk about this stuff anyway so that yeah. is how this got started yeah. uh for those that might be wondering at home we were just like wait why don't we just start recording all of this stuff basically <laughs> all right well with our intros out of the way we do have a few pieces of housekeeping but today we're going back to flavortown for midnight hunt I'm gonna talk some innistrad lore and some of the different things that they brought into the draft format in terms of lore to really bring us back to the plane of innistrad before we get into all of that of course our typical housekeeping items if you're not in the discord already check it out it's a really great place to be we've got a lot of different people over there with some really cool thoughts and opinions on the formats different constructed formats all those sorts of things uh, it's completely free and the link to that is in the episode description as well as on our twitter page so definitely check that out And we also have a Patreon. That's the best place you can go to support us directly. Patreon.com forward slash DraftChaffPod. We really wouldn't be doing this without all of our patrons, all the support that you guys all show us each and every week. Thank you so much for all of that. And if you're interested in the Patreon, perks include things like stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show, and also our DraftChaff Hero cards sent to you. So check that out. Uh, We just announced the DraftChaff Hero for Midnight Hunt. And it was Morbid Opportunist. So if you're interested in getting signed copies of Morbid Opportunist sent to you, uh, go check out the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchefpod. We also recommend signing up so that you can submit your draft doctors, which we've been having a lot of fun doing. Uh, The first few are up and you can check them out on YouTube. Uh, I've just about exhausted my list of doctor puns, but I think I can still drum up a few more in the future. We'll keep going with it. Is Is there an actual list? No comment. All right. All right. On to our cracker draft type thing. Ben, this looks like it's not a pack one, pick one. Why don't you uh, walk us through what this is? No, this is actually a pack one, pick four. It's, I know, a little weird, but I'd like to tell you a bit about what we've got in the pack so far. My pack one, pick one was Sludge Monster. Always happy to first pick a blue rare, especially a good one like Sludge Monster. And actually, this is the first time I got to draft it. I've never actually cast it up until this point. I know we're like three weeks into the format, four weeks into the format. I should have cast everything a million times by now. But, you know, blue cards tend to get snapped up pretty quick. Uh, I second picked Organ Hoarder, which, you know, <laughs> solid thing to do. I, th- I think I took it over not much else. It might have been the, the blue 1-3 that mills when it dies. You can bring it back as a 3-4. I-, I just took Organ Hoarder over it. And then uh, pick three, I took a Phantom Carriage. Fun little card. I like one in my blue decks. And although the Sludge Monster is starting to push the top end a little bit, I'm definitely going to prioritize getting some more aggressive stuff in this deck so I can really maximize my curve out. This is looking like a nice little cut off from blue. I might just be able to corner blue in this draft. And that's definitely where you want to be in Midnight Hunt. Now, I want to tell you about pick four because this is where I got a little bit stuck. In this pack is Tavern Ruffian, Soul Guide Griff, Shadow Beast Sighting, Return to Nature, Pestilent Wolf, Harvest Tide Sentry, Devious Cover Up, Blood Pact, Bat Whisperer, Hungry for More, and Delver of Secrets. Intriguing, intriguing. First jumping out to me here is 
just in the order that you that you named those cards. Shadow Beast Sighting was the first that caught my attention. And then maybe Return to Nature. Is this best of three? Uh, this was actually best of one, which is okay. weird. I, I do prefer best of three in this format. There's so many cool sideboard cards, such as Return to Nature, which is always nice. Or I, I've really been liking Thraven Exorcism. It can absolutely ruin blue and, and white decks in this format. And then Devious Cover-Up, of course, is a great card when you can kind of get the looping stuff together and, and keep yourself from decking because, well, some of these decks can churn through cards quite quickly. And then obviously Delver of Secrets, being a blue card, being a powerful card in certain builds, catches my eye as well. Now, I think Delver is actually quite a bit worse in this format than it could have been or has been in the past. It, it does take quite a bit of building around to make, you know, the Delver of like Modern or something or Pauper or whatever. Mm -hmm. You really need to be building your deck to, to take advantage of Delver. And so far, yours isn't doing that. But I think yeah. I'd still take it. I mean, it's easy enough to build instant and sorcery decks and you're not locked into your second color yet so you could very well end up in some blue red spells deck that really would love a delver and you're not really missing anything to take this here i mean your bet next best card i guess if you want to stay in your colors is devious cover-up probably can get more of those and then otherwise it's shadow be sighting and i've seen plenty of those wheel as well so and you're not really looking to play blue green if you can avoid it so i would i would be on delver here honestly i don't have much more to say you covered pretty much all my points exactly on shadow be setting i think is the best card in the pack in a vacuum but i just haven't liked blue green i played a blue green deck with multiple copies of slogurk the over slime that wacky thing and multiple eccentric farmers and i just got ran over by these more aggressive blue decks that were leveraging their cards better and my, my green late games wasn't enough delver is an awesome card i have died to a turn to flip delver in limited which is definitely achievement for uh, i guess both me and the player that did it so I did actually end up taking the Delver here. Now, I didn't like this pick. This this pick felt bad because I think I probably should have just taken my medicine and taken the Shadow Beast sighting and maybe even played some sort of... Uh, I know our, our, our buddy Sirkovitz is a big fan of the Teamer Spells type archetype. And Organ Hoarder, Sludge Monster, th these cards are just going to be great in that kind of deck too. This is a pretty wide open draft. I really just have some good value blue cards. Now, I decided to take the Delver because I just kind of wanted to. I just thought it'd be kind of fun if I could potentially wind up in a heavier spells deck. I ended up not playing it. Uh, I didn't actually see that many more blue cards. I got cut off of blue pretty quickly, and I wound up in blue-white. I had a solid deck. Uh, blue-white was open, funnily enough. But I believe the player to my right ended up in blue-black or maybe blue-red because I, I saw very few blue cards coming around. I, I got tons of blue-white cards. I was able to get a few of the uncommons. But I just didn't really see many good blue instants that the Delver needed to actually work. So I ended up taking the Delver, but in hindsight, probably should have taken the Shadow Beast setting. That's interesting. I, I mean, it's a disciplined piece of drafting to be able to take a card that you would like to play or or could be powerful and then just ignore it if you don't get there which is great we talk about doing that with your first picks all the time but i'm curious like you're saying in hindsight you'd rather take in the shadow beast sighting like was your chances overall of playing the shadow beast sighting higher than playing the delver you think maybe it's we have to weigh both the chances and the i guess expected value of the power you kind of have to multiply the power the card presents as well as the likelihood you are to play it and I think, like, you're never cutting Shadow Beast setting from a green deck, right? Right. I mean, I mean, maybe I never see another blue card in this pack or in this draft, and I wish that I had picked up a Shadow Beast setting because I wind up in some kind of green pile that really just needed the power. Here I took the Delver, and this does put me in a very specific vector. This says you need spells, and you need a lot of them. 
I ended up with not that many spells. I went, I wound up with like I think six or seven spells in my deck, and only half of them were like instants and sorceries. I think yeah, I you would have like twice that much. Yeah, yeah. So I think I probably should have taken the Shadow Beast setting if I was drafting like the hard way, so to speak. That being said, you know, Delver's kind of fun. And it's not the last time we're going to talk about Delver in this episode, is it? I suppose not. All right, on to our Teferi Tibble. This is our Roses and Thorns segment where Ben and I share a high and a low from the past week. So, Ben, Teferi Tibble. Sure, I'm going to start with a Teferi Tibble. It is actually a Teferi and a Tibble. And that's that I got the COVID booster. As a teacher, I fell into the high needs group in my area. So I was able to go get it. Apparently, the vaccine efficiency or like efficacy rate decreases after six months so you know they're encouraging people to get boosters and i was like sure i spent a lot of time with disgusting high schoolers <laughs> i probably i probably should go stay safe so i got it around 24 hours ago and i am currently feeling probably like peak or approaching peak of the symptoms which is just a basically unusable left arm and kind of like i don't know light sickness but uh it's it's i'm feeling it's starting to get a little worse so I told Zach, as soon as we're done recording, I'm probably going to go to sleep. <laughs> and uh, I've already, I'm starting to take off of work tomorrow. So I'd ask the, wish, the listener to wish me well. But I mean, hopefully by the time they listen to this, I'm already fine. <laughs> yeah, such is the uh, the dilemma, I guess, of recording a few days ahead of when the episode releases. My Teferi is that I actually, for the first time in a while, I found a 60 card deck that I am just happy to play for no incentive. Uh, which usually I play a dex for just, you know, getting the gems or I'll, I'll grind up my daily, uh, my daily wins playing historic brawl or something. But have you seen the new historic humans deck? I'll be honest. I have not paid attention to anything constructed in weeks. <laughs> you honestly haven't missed much. I mean, actually, wait, you missed worlds. So there was that. Worlds happened. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> dude! There's like, you know, one of the best decks in standard right now is blue red taking turns, right? I do know that, yes, but I don't <laughs> like those decks when everybody else likes those decks. Oh, we got a we got a blue hipster over here. <laughs> well, uh, I, I I mean, I, I think you'd probably get a kick out of playing. I took it for a spin, and I was just like. I could see how busted it was, and I just didn't really enjoy playing it. But this green-white humans, this is exactly what I like to do. It's got Thalia's Lieutenant, which is a card I love playing in Standard. It's got Thraven Inspector, which is a card I love playing in Standard. Honestly, if they just give me a tireless tracker, I'll have the, the trifecta of uh, of old Innistrad humans to, to go off of. And I even have Thalia herself. So it's this kind of uh, green-white collected company deck. It features Brutal Cathar. Um, the, it features Paulo Vitor Damodarosa <laughs> and uh, a few other fun ones here and there. Some, some spicy one-ofs like an Adeline and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's just a lot of fun to play. And uh, it's the first time in a while that I can remember a constructed deck where I was like, oh, this is just really enjoyable. I would enter a tournament with this. So maybe Sweet. the next time a historic uh, open or something like that comes around, maybe I'll hop in. Nice, nice. How about you? I think we did What's just have an there? arena open that was in standard or something, but... Uh, oh, well. <laughs> All right, what's up with you? Yeah, so for me, uh, I'll start with my Teferi. First, the, the dog is adjusting well. Last week I mentioned that my wife and I got a dog. She's she's adjusting well. A lot of her um, character, I guess, is starting to come out. Her personality is starting to reveal itself. She's getting much more comfortable at, at home and realizing, like, oh, we're, we're done moving around because she had been moved from, like, a whole bunch of different locations within the span of a month, so she kind of didn't realize, like, Oh yeah, this is this is where I'm hanging up my coat, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Your dog's coat. Yeah, 
And then my the other fairy is my wife and I decided on our Halloween costumes. We've been spending quite a bit of time trying to come up with ones that we we wanted to do a couple's costume, but we often don't. Well, we're not really into the same things. So like my thoughts immediately went to like, let's try to do something with Avatar or like I could suggest <laughs> magic maybe, but she would probably just not get it. And then I was yeah. like, what what shows or movies or like Marvel stuff do we like? And it's none of that. And I'm not going to say what it is because what? we may or may not be going to some form of Halloween party that somebody who is listening and or speaking on this show <laughs> might <What>? also be at. <laughs> You're not even going to tell me? You nope. just hyped it up this much? Yep. Oh my god! All right, whatever. <laughs> should be should be good though. I'm I'm excited for it. it, it it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fun one. Okay, okay. Uh, I look forward to seeing it when I see it at a party that I may or may not also be going to. <laughs> exactly, exactly. My table this week is that work has been completely slammed. I am just it's just been a lot. I, I don't really know what else to say about it. It's been draining and stressful and all that sort of stuff. So looking forward to things hopefully calming down as I'm rolling off of one engagement and into another. Um, hopefully this new one, the new one is going to be like approaching, I think it's like 18 weeks. So it'll be quite a while that I'm on the same, same project. So hopefully it goes well. It'll suck if that one goes poorly because it's going to last a while. But otherwise, um, things are things are mostly good. And then the other the other tibble is that um, I've had next to no magic lately. Like I've just not been playing much magic. We played some EDH online over spell yeah, table last week, which was awesome. It's been a long time since I got to play some EDH and I got to kill Ben from 90 life in one turn. <laughs> so oh, you got to tell them the story about that. That was awesome. Yeah, maybe, maybe in the sign off. I'll throw it in the sign off. Okay, okay, okay. But yeah, it was a lot of fun, so excited to do that. If you're interested in playing EDH, jump in the Discord, because we don't often get groups together, just based on the number of people who are in the same time zones and things, and everybody's schedules are a mess. But if you're interested in playing, jump in the Discord so we can get some games together, because it'll be really fun to, to get doing that more often. On to our listener question of the week. This week, our question comes from Pizza Hand. And the question is, I know you guys are high on red-white spells, but other podcasters or pros, for example, Lords of Limited, are not. How do you reconcile that difference or account for your reasons of disagreement? Ooh, a good question. They're all wrong and we're right. Nice <laughs> I knew question. you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like no, that. No, no, no. There's a bit more to it, as there always is. So I think a lot of what we... I mean. I can take this from a learning perspective, as I, I tend to do. Everyone learns from their own experience, right? And this means most likely that certain people have had certain experiences with, for example, red-white spells. Uh, certain people have not. I have definitely had some really good experiences with red-white spells, and there's a lot of variability that goes into that. That wasn't just, you know, something that, you know, I, I got blessed with. Actually, I guess it kind of was. <laughs> In a way, I, I got lucky. And plus, red-white spells happens to play into some specifics about me. For example, I love aggressive decks, and I love bizarre card advantage. Uh, as a, a white mage, uh, I'm always looking for ways to get around the usual white drawbacks of, uh, you know, not ever drawing cards. So I, I really have been enjoying the set because you can pair white with uh, this kind of burn card advantage color in red, of which people have started to catch on that something like Seize the Storm, the Arden Elementalist, and the Moonrager Slash really make up this this powerful core that can really give your white deck some late game reach that it might not have otherwise. Sometimes in a black-white deck, uh, you might just get stonewalled by a 3-6, right? But in this red-white deck, you have the ability to top deck a Moonrager Slash and just burn them out if you got them low enough or make two of their creatures not block for this turn and then they know that two of their creatures aren't be able to block next turn either. So this kind of ability to 
go around plays into my personal strengths really well because these are the kind of decks I like playing in general. Decks that are very proactive in attack. Now, there might be other players out there that also like red-white spells, uh, maybe also like to be proactive, and maybe didn't have the same experience with red-white spells in the set. Maybe their cards were different, and no two people have the same exact draft experience, right? Or maybe their matchups were worse, or maybe mine were just really good. So uh, I would say it is mostly due to our individual experiences. And I will admit that red-white spells is not the best deck in the format, not by a stretch. Do I think I pilot it better than most people? Maybe, because it does play into my strengths. But are other people, uh, specifically other you know, podcasters or pros, wrong? Definitely not. I think this is why it's good to, to listen to our very specific takes on things, not our broad takes. This is why it's better to talk about when a card is useful in a certain vector rather than just giving it a grade, right? Yeah, and I think there's also something to be said about what those folks are co- trying to accomplish with their content versus what we're trying to accomplish. A lot of what we try to talk about and hype up on this show is what we're enjoying and having fun with and what what just is great to play or feels good to play as opposed to this will maximize your win percentage. The draft chef, would you would you say? <laughs> Something like that. I think that might be on brand for us. So, you know, a lot of times, like I said, we'll talk about different archetypes that aren't getting as much limelight because we're having a ton of fun with them. And again, doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best decks. Certainly in this case, red-white is not better than black-blue in a vacuum. Like, you get the best versions of both of those decks. Blue-black is probably still just the like the clear winner there. But we really enjoy red-white spells, and it also comes down to reps. If we really like the, that deck or the packages that are kind of built, that that vector is built around, right, with like the red spells package, Thermo Alchemist, that kind of thing, if we really like that and we're more willing to draft it on a regular basis, then we might be playing with it more often and learn how to build and play that deck better than some other folks who are lower on it. So we still have more fun with it and we continue to play it. Well, that does it for a listener question. Thanks so much for for asking that question. And that's a cool one because we don't really get to talk too much about different like takes on on cards. We just kind of talk about what we think. So that's that's really cool. Thanks for that. Keep those listener questions coming, folks. But now let's get into our main topic, which is Flavortown Midnight Hunt. And as always, I'd like to welcome you to Flavortown, which is your destination for all things fun in form and function. Midnight Hunt has some really interesting cards, some some uh, some storied histories going on here. And we wanted to take some time to appreciate the art, flavor text, design, all this great flavor of our favorite cards in the set. And then we wanted to talk about them in context of the limited environment. I mean, as much as we would love to talk about a whole show of just admiring art, we're not quite that kind of podcast. So we're going to chat about how these cards have been playing out in limited as well. Now that we've kind of uh, gotten a good idea of how they work in the format. All right, so before we get into all of that, Innistrad has been around for a very long time. We've been back to it a few times, and a lot of folks who listen to this show may have not been playing Magic when the previous Return to Innistrad sets came out, and namely those are Shadows Over Innistrad and Eldritch Moon. And so we kind of wanted to give a brief sort of recap on the lore and story and things of that nature from that block, and then kind of segue it into what we've seen so far in Midnight Hunt. So first things first, Innistrad has always been the quote-unquote gothic horror plane. Like this is the set for Halloween and the just the the zombies, the nightmares, the monsters, things like that. The, that is Innistrad through and through. Last time we were here, they got changed up a little bit. And namely, that's because, well, somebody happened to set loose the Eldrazi on <laughs> Innistrad just by accident. Or, no, actually, it was completely on purpose. Nahiri had a big <laughs> grudge with, with Soren over a handful of different things. 
essentially she was left by herself when Soren and Ugin said they were going to help when the Adrazi re-attacked <laughs> Zendikar. Um, the three of them are sort of the original planeswalkers and they had a pact that if the Eldrazi ever got loose again, they would come back to help out and, and fix the problem as it were. This time around, neither Soren nor Ugin were reachable. Nahiri had to kind of help deal with the Eldrazi menace by herself. And so she got a little bit pissed off about this. Wasn't exactly thrilled. And so she decided, you know what? Let's let's give Soren a taste of his medicine. Let's send the Eldrazi to Innistrad to wreak havoc and see what he can do about it on his own. Right. And this had a whole bunch of interesting consequences. Uh, it turned a lot of stuff weird. There was a, this kind of mystery element there was a, a one whole Innistrad set where we didn't actually know what was happening and there were little hints that maybe the Eldrazi were coming. There was like a horse that had one extra leg or some webbing spot in the background of a card that looked a little bit Emrakul-esque. Uh, and then, of course, the famous investigate mechanic and the clue tokens, which if you looked at certain words in the flavor text of the clues, you could pick out the words, remember they came as three which was an old saying about the Eldrazi Titans. So that was a kind of big hint because uh, two of the Titans had been taken down back on Zendikar, but Emrakul had not been seen. So remember they came as three. It was a pretty big hint that Emrakul might be on her way. And well, we know what comes next. Yeah, so as all that was happening, not only were things getting warped and Innistrad starting to take a turn and looking a bit differently, we also started to see some weird things pop up with the residents of Innistrad. We saw werewolves kind of going evil and wild, more ravenous, I suppose, more animalistic, as it were. And then Avacyn went insane, basically, and started kind of killing people and going crazy we got a cool flip card for her where the front side was like her as herself you know a white card pure angel and then the back side was red as she was going crazy and um, of course all the other angels kind of followed suit uh, which ultimately led to soren having to kill her which you know was a big big part of the story we even got a, a whole card for that anguished on making and yep that's all thanks to our girl emmy Good old Emrakul. Mm, right. So not all the angels went totally nuts, although a lot of them did. Uh, Sigarda, her flight of angels and herself, they managed to kind of survive it. And uh, at that point, Lisa, the, the lost angel, had not really been seen in a long time. And uh, I mean, well, we'll explain more about that in the in the new lore. But anyway, that, that when Avacyn went insane, the curse mute was broken. That was uh, her way of... Um, kind of protecting all of the werewolves on Innistrad from their more animalistic instincts. Some of them became wolfer, uh, which were these kind of like holy werewolves that could, you know, do good. And some of them had their their werewolfism, lycanthropy, if I remember yeah. right, uh, entirely cured by it. That kind of all went away and uh, Innistrad descended into almost total chaos as Emrakul came. And it eventually it took Liliana coming and kind of using the well, abundant dead bodies everywhere <laughs> to uh, to push back against the Eldrazi horde. But I love the art and, and the flavor in the last Innistrad set. There was some really messed up stuff. If you look at some of those werewolves, they are like just disemboweling people. And they themselves are disemboweled. Like they're, they're these webbed monstrosities. I loved the look of those cards. Yeah, and then so Lily helped push back Emrakul and all that sort of stuff. We also had help from the rest of the Gatewatch because the Gatewatch was still a thing at the time. And... Namely, we had a bit of help from Jace, who was kind of helping lead the investigation into what was going on with Innistrad. We got a card for him, Jace Unraveler of Mysteries. And there was also Tamio, who we hadn't seen in quite a while at that point. 
and Tamio helped lock Emrakul in the moon. But as that happened in the story, there was a realization that this was done basically by Emrakul. She kind of facilitated all of this and more or less influenced Tamio to lock her in the moon. And then that was it. The story ended. And we're like, wait a second. So Emrakul orchestrated this whole thing, got herself locked up in the moon over Innistrad, and that's all we get. So when Midnight Hunt rolled around and we had this whole eternal night, eternal day kind of thing coming up, I at least was very curious about whether or not we were going to get another big Emrakul reveal and like, oh, she's been manipulating things from the moon or something. We'll talk about what really went down with with the Midnight Hunt story, but that is basically where we left off with Eldritch Moon, which was the second of the two set block the last time we read Innistrad. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to spoil this for the current story, I recommend skipping like, I don't know, five or ten minutes ahead. Let's just go over what happened in this one pretty briefly and then talk about our thoughts on the story as a whole. Basically, this one focuses on Arlen Cord, who we saw a little bit before. She's a uh, werewolf and a planeswalker, which is a pretty cool combination. This usually results in some pretty neat double double face cards, uh, as, as we see in our current set. Although there is the whole, like, do you pick Arlen or Organ Hoarder? Pack one, pick one. That's not a that's not a discussion I think we have time to get into now. Oh man, what would I do? No, 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 we can't talk about it. We can't talk about it. So basically Arlen noticed that that, that the moon is starting to get bad. Tovalar, her old uh kind of father figure, mentor, is starting to amass these like mega werewolves that are getting bigger and stronger and more brutal. And before she herself can be kind of pulled into the pack. She realizes, uh uh-oh, I got to get some help because something about Innistrad is really off right now. She meets up with some of these witches in the woods that are trying to do an ancient ritual using ancient magic from from Innistrad's past, attempting to hopefully correct the day-night cycle. Eventually, Arlen realizes she needs some backup. She planeswalks to Ravnica and hits up some fellow planeswalkers. Teferi's there just hanging out. Chandra's there just hanging out. Uh, I think Kaya was there as well, and that's how she winds up on uh, on Innistrad too. I mean, there's also Ren and Seven, but Ren appears through a side story. That's kind of a whole different topic. Anywho, this story was pretty solid, but it ended in a weird way. Basically, there's this whole big thing. They go and have to find a a, a McGovern, the, the, what is it, key, Moonsilver key. Yep. They have to go get the Moonsilver key to put into the Celestis to complete the ritual to make the day-night cycle reset back to normal so the night stops getting stronger. And at the very last minute, at the end of it all, Olivia Valderin swoops in, grabs the the lead witch, Katilda, and picks her up and just drops her. (laughs) There's some yelling back and forth between, like, Kaya and Olivia, but the the ultimate point is that she just picks her up, drops her, and Arlen has to, like, jump under her to save her. It's... I guess, I think from what I remember in the story, a little vague whether she survives the fall or not. So it messes up the ritual, and the ritual fails. They give over the, the moon silver key, or whatever it is, to, to Olivia in, in exchange for uh, in exchange for Catilda. And they fail. Like, the, the heroes lose at the end of the story. They, they went through all this effort. They went on a whole bunch of side quests. They, they talked to some dead people. All the planeswalkers had... They went into a haunted house at one point. It was pretty fun. And then they just fail at the end of it. The, the, the story ends on a downbeat it's it's really interesting i, I was kind of surprised i i guess I, I had assumed olivia's midnight ambush happened somewhere within the story and that they would resolve it at the end but no that's actually the last story spotlight that's like the end of the story so whatever's coming next it's probably not good yeah, it's interesting because it, it is technically the end of the story given that midnight hunt and crimson vow are two separate sets and they're not technically in a block mm. but it also kind of feels like it's the middle of the story because we're going to get a whole nother set of story with crimson vow and 
how much the two kind of align with each other is still to be determined, I guess. We did get a little bit of a spoiler with it based on just the way they're marketing Crimson Val right now. Yeah. Like, we got a spoiler that like things basically just didn't work and Olivia did her thing and that's it. So I guess they spoiled the entire story or at least the ending anyway. And it's, it's fine. I think from a writing perspective, it was pretty good overall. Like I had fun reading the first couple of them and I didn't actually read any of the side stories. So still have to go through and, and check those out. Not really sure why Arlen felt the need to go grab other planeswalkers like none of them felt like they had a real place in any of this and like she could have just done all the stuff on her own anyway and it didn't really matter i don't know that's a little bit interesting and then they also just hardly used ren it seemed so like not really sure where they come into play maybe we'll see some cool planeswalker stuff in the next set and i don't think it's clear yet who olivia's marrying right yeah there's some theories uh, i have a feeling it's our buddy eddie markov but i don't know i don't know who, who knows maybe soren is involved somehow but there's some weird stuff happening with the Markov family. We do find out that Soren managed to get himself out of the wall that right. Nahiri imprisoned him in, uh, thanks to the old card Declaration in Stone. Oh, I love that. When Nahiri just went to uh, Markov Manor and basically just destroyed the entire thing instantly, just pure rage. Uh, I, I do love Nahiri. Weirdly enough, Planeswalkers felt a little bit weirdly used in this set. I mean, we got to be getting a Chandra next set because otherwise, why was she here for this? Uh, like you said... I don't really get why, from, from like an overarching story perspective, why Teferi or Chandra had to be here for this. It, it felt a little shoehorned in. Teferi, he, he kind of does some time-bendy stuff, but he's not even on that many of the cards. I mean, he did get his own, but like, it didn't really... I don't know, it didn't, it didn't feel as much like a Teferi card, and I don't think from a story perspective he really did anything, like... They all still failed anyway, and he hardly did anything to help in the first place. So, yeah, it, d it did feel shoehorned. And then we also missed out on a lot of stuff that it would have been cool to get answers from, from, like, Shadows. Um, we knew Soren got out from from the, the wall. And for those that don't know, Nahiri is a lithomancer, so she can control, like, stone and rocks and things. So she locked him into some, like, a concrete wall, basically. And then that was all we heard about that. And then he showed up on, on Ravnica for the whole War of the Spark thing. So... We kind of knew he got out, but we didn't know how, and that's kind of where they left us with that, and that's, that's all we're really getting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I read the side stories, too. They were, they were pretty fun. I actually liked them more than the main story. I, I like seeing the daily lives of Innistrad folk, especially after what they called the, uh, the travails. Is that how you pronounce it, I guess? Uh, that was what their name was for the whole Eldrazi problem. Uh, kind of seeing how Innistrad life is readapted post-Travails was interesting. For some truly awesome Innistrad flavor and story, I recommend going and looking up the Gitrog monster story, uh, the, the one-off uh, from the last Innistrad set, or from the one where the angels descended upon the townsfolk. I can't remember the name of that story, but that one was awesome. Like, truly horrific stuff. Uh, some of the best stories ever written for magic. I think we got the card Descend Upon the Sinful from that one, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, featuring the angels descending upon well, everybody. <laughs> Besides that, I, I liked some of the representation use in, in these stories. Some cool non-binary characters, which is always nice. All, all about representation in games. It, it can be a little uh, little dangerous to, to make sure it doesn't feel too shoehorned in. Because representation is great, and it's great for people to be able to see themselves in the games they play. However, it's not good when it's like tokenism, and it's a very fine line to walk. And I think this walked it pretty well. If you enjoy Magic Story, I'd, I'd recommend reading this newest arc. I'd, it's not one of the all-timers, but it's solid. Probably like a 6 or a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I think I totally agree. It, it was fun to read, and it's it was a, 
an overall good story. I think the story plot was a little disappointing in that, like, it didn't really get us anywhere. <laughs> yeah, nothing happened. But I, I'm hopeful that Crimson Vow is going to be the adjuster for that, and we're going to get, like, some really fun, actionable story that's going to have real, like, multiverse implications or something like that in Crimson Vow. Well, with that, I'd like to jump into our dishonorable mentions. And I'd like to start with Fateful Absence. That's the one in the white instant rare destroy target creature or planeswalker its controller investigates. Now, here's the thing. The art and the flavor text absolutely must be seen here. It's clearly Soren looking into a casket. And he says, sensing a plot, Soren raced to his grandfather's resting crypt. But someone else had gotten there first. So I could have sworn Edgar Markov was Soren's grandfather, right? I could never keep in, in my, like keep it straight in my head whether Edgar was Soren's dad or his grandfather. I thought it was a grandfather relationship, but this implies that he's dead or was dead. This also implies that his corpse, or unless it's just like one of those vampires, like literally resting in a <laughs> in a coffin and then coming out, uh, like what we do in the shadow style, or, or maybe someone else had gotten there first. This is one card that, unless I miss something huge, just was never explained anywhere in the story. Like I don't think we saw this at all. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because now now that we have the story from Midnight Hunt and we have cards and we know a bit about the story for Crimson Vow, it actually seems like the two were like completely separate stories that are happening at the same time on Innistrad. Like they're completely outside of, I guess, Olivia, like stopping the whole Celestis ritual. Like it feels like everything that's going to happen with Olivia is just like this other thing that's happening simultaneously while some people are trying to figure out the day night cycle. It almost feels like they, they just don't actually go together at all. Um, we'll see if that's true, but yeah, I'm kind of picturing this, like Soren's been kind of figuring out something's going down, but it has zero to do with the day night cycle, or maybe something's going down and Olivia is responsible for what's going down and needs the night, the, the extended night to accomplish whatever her plan is. Yeah. Soren only appeared once in the story from what I can remember. And it was when he was confronted by kind of the, the main squad, uh, like Chandra, Kaya, Arlen, uh, I think Adeline was there too. And actually Sigarda showed up to, and actually fought Soren. They ended up dueling so that the, the main gang could escape and find the Moonsilver Key. So I don't remember Soren mentioning anything about an empty tomb or resting place in that little bit there. I, I'm, I'm giving this a dishonorable mention because I just, I'm more confused by the flavor of this one than I am uh, resolved anything by it. If I miss something, uh, like, comment, and subscribe uh, to let me know that I, I miss something and I'm just an idiot. But I don't think I missed anything here. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, hopefully we get... I, ho I think this will be a segue to Crimson Vow somehow, and we'll get the answer to this in Crimson Vow. My next dishonorable mention is Sunstreak Phoenix. That's the two red red 4-2 flyer, and it has the whole like day and night thing. You can pay to bring it back when it changes. I just... Th this one makes me mad from a world-building perspective. Why on earth is there a phoenix on Innistrad? Yeah, is this the Why first Why is one? there a phoenix on Innistrad? I don't get it. Is this the only phoenix on Innistrad that we've like, checked, heard of? Yep. I checked. There is no mention of a phoenix anywhere else. I mean, there's there's already like, this role is filled by other things. The, the griffs, for example. The griffs are kind of seen as these like long, nimble. Why couldn't this have been like a mono red, like angry griff or something? That would have been really funny. And there's dragons to, to fill the big flyers role too, which we also, we also got a mythic four mana dragon. Wow, that, that, huh. Two four mana, four power flyers. And, and one of them had to be a phoenix for some reason. I, I just don't get why they had to insert a new creature type. When Innistrad is already known for its incredible slew of creature types, 
why not just make this like maybe like a, a furious geist or something cool? I mean, we we got uh, we got one of those a, a few sets ago too, didn't we? Can't recall, but yeah, I I get what you're saying. I wonder if this started as like, hey, we want a card that you can bring back from the graveyard in some way, shape, or form. And that just kind of naturally led into them discussing it being a phoenix because that's like the phoenix thing. But you're right. It is weird. Like we just we've never seen or heard of one anywhere. Now, I will say, though, in certain forms of lore, depending on the system, I guess, you know, like Harry Potter or magic in this case or whatever. In a lot of mythologies, there is only ever one phoenix in existence. And then that one okay. dies and gets reborn and stuff. So maybe this is the Phoenix. But if that were the case, I would kind of expect it to be a legend. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I was thinking of Flame Skull, the the okay, uh, yeah. three mana three one that can't block and dies into cards and maybe itself. I mean, this could have fulfilled a similar role. That was, I mean, well, I guess that was that was a skeleton or maybe like a skeleton ghost or something. But this this could have been like uh, an angry geist. Geists have been red in the past. Uh, actually, I guess blue red. But I don't know. This one this one just didn't feel right to me. Last but not least, I've decided to put on Delver of Secrets. And this one, look, all magic art is awesome. I prefer the old art. <laughs> I'm, I'm just biased. Just as all art can be great and everyone's art is, and each art on a card is the favorite of someone, we're allowed to have our preferences. And personally, I prefer the old art because I felt like it really carried that story. In the last set, they printed, um, what was it? Aberrant Researcher and Docent of Perfection, which mm-hmm. kind of continued the Delver story. If you haven't heard of these cards, look them up. They are incredible. Basically, it takes the backside of Delver and makes it the front side of a new card. And it tells this beautiful story of this guy who turns himself into a bug and then turns himself into an even better bug and then starts turning other people into bugs. So uh, I, I really just didn't like messing with that. It, it felt so weird. I think the original art, Niels Ham, but uh, the old art just, you know, when I think Delver of Secrets, I always see that that beautiful mantis and those carefully laid uh, butterflies on the on the window behind. I don't know, this one looks like Lab Man. I've just seen a bunch of mad scientists in, in Magicka. I, I prefer the nuanced uh, bug wizard. Yeah, it does feel very lab maniac in in style. I do agree with you that the the old art was was also, in my opinion, uh, preferable to this one. But I did I did like it. I didn't quite. I actually like the Delver side of this one quite a bit. I do still prefer the old Delver, but the the flip side of Delver was the piece for me that I was like, yeah, I'm not really into this on the new one. Maybe you could just take the front of the old one and the back of the new one and splice them together. No, the other way around. I want the front of oh. the front of the new one. Wait, the, did, I don't know how you said that. Never mind. Let's just move on. <laughs> whatever, whatever. So we're each going to share five cards that we wanted to highlight for some reason, whether it was their flavor or the, their their art or just how they function. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how they've been playing out in the set themselves. Sure. So my first one here is Triska Decophile. That's a one and a blue for a 1-3 creature human wizard at rare. You have no maximum hand size at the beginning of your upkeep. If you have exactly 13 cards in your hand, you win the game. And then you can pay three and a blue to draw a card. And the reason I put this on here was simply that they decided to continue the Triska Decca something theme from Innistrad. We've yeah. we've gotten, I think we've gotten a Triskadeka card in every single Innistrad set, or at least every block. Probably um, something like that. But we used to have Triskadekaphobia, which was a fantastic card. And then we also had the trees, like Tree of Perdition mm-hmm. in them, which cared about the 13 thing. 
Triskaidekaphobia in particular was really awesome because there were 13 sets of 13 objects in the in the art, and that was phenomenal. I, don't, I didn't bother to count if they did that in Triskaidekaphile, but I don't know. But it, th- I just love that, that theme and that they've continued to bring it back every single set, or at least every block. All right, my first one is Bereaved Survivor, which is my personal, probably my favorite art in the set. Uh, I, I'd absolutely love this by... Uh, by Zara, who's a, a new magic artist. And I, I, this is just, it's so beautiful. I love it. I mean, th- this captures the moment of loss and grief so well. And then the flavor of this card as a whole, she did the back set as well. Just awesome. For those that don't know, the Brief Survivor, when a creature dies, you transform it and it flips into Dauntless Avenger, which can return smaller creature cards, mana value two or less, from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped and attacking. I like this card in Limited. Uh, it doesn't have a home that often, but in some very specific decks, it can do a lot of good work. The trouble is getting two drops that you actually want to come back. Thing is, you can't get back a Candlegrove Witch and have it survive very often because this happens after the Coven trigger would have happened for the Witch, so it just comes in as a 2-2 ground attacker. But still, I've, I've had card, uh, games where the Brief Survivor ultimately ended up swinging to win me the game. Uh, and, you know, the flavor of this kind of growing through your loss and I guess in this case maybe not literally resurrecting your your dead friends or whatever but kind of growing through it and keeping the memory of them alive in some way. Now I actually reached out to, to Zara Alfonso about this because I was curious if this card was related to her other card in the set Novice Occultist. You can see some of the, the similarities in the art here and well, um, not exactly. That wasn't directed, but it seems that it is a nice little inclusion that the bereaved survivor can get back the novice occultist. I, I asked if maybe these were sisters or something, and I think that that's. Uh, I did get confirmed. It's not not actually true, but she did let me know that it was a, a nice thought. Yeah, it seemed like it was a preferable headcanon for. Like she actually really seemed to like. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. that you suggested yeah. that They're, I mean the synergy works really well together too and it makes sense uh, I, I also love novice occultist I mean if you look closely in, in the art of that this girl she's like just laying out stakes <laughs> as part of some kind of ritual and I don't know what rituals require these, these prime delicious cuts of meat but I, I hope they wind up okay I don't want to see those go into waste I wonder if she was involved in the meat hook massacre <laughs> oh my god I hope she wasn't a victim could have been could have been so my second card here is spectral adversary i think pretty much any longtime listener would see this coming i'm a huge spirits fan and probably my favorite creature type in magic and this card is just amazing i mean it's it's a very cool design with the adversary cycle that they did in this set it's a two mana two one flyer it has flash which i love to see on my spirits and then it also does this really cool phase thing uh, which can help save your own stuff or get rid of your opponent's things. It's it's like, I don't know, it's just a very unique spirit and very cool that it fills like a very specific role and, and can be kind of slotted in. On top of that, it is very reminiscent of classic Innistrad spirit art. Mm-hmm. Like this card fits in so well artistically with like Mausoleum Wanderer or Rattle Chains or things like that. And I just love it. This is like my favorite style of art in terms of just like the colors that are used and and the dramaticism of it and the way it looks and everything i just i just absolutely love it also pretty much unpassable <laughs> yeah yeah uh i mean Fantastic not if you're not card. blue but yeah this is one of the better pack one pick ones my next card is defenestrate that's the old two and a black destroy target creature without flying which this one's included because this is just funny it's weird that this is the first time this text has ever been printed on a card that this hasn't been done before it makes sense that, you know, destroying a creature without flying. And the art, of course, is a, a, what appears to be a Cathar just getting pushed out the window. And if you look up the dictionary definition for uh, Defenestrate, 
Well, it either means to be removed or lowered in, in a system of power, or pushed out of a building. And the, the flavor of this card is just so on point. Obviously, if you push a bird or an angel or a spirit out of a window, they don't really care. But it looks like our our uh, our chaplain friend here is not going to meet with a very pleasant end. Now, I'm surprised that you didn't also potentially include this on your dishonorable mentions. Because if you look in the art, that window clearly has braces in place that would have prevented this person from getting thrown out of it. But all the, all the glasses shattered... It would have been nice to see, like, one of those braces removed or something so that it actually okay. made sense for this person to get squeezed out of this window, but... All right, all right. Maybe they just got... Maybe they're just a really, like, tiny person. We don't, <laughs> we don't know what size this person is. They could have fit through those bars, maybe. I Also, it's hard to see what exactly did the pushing. Is that a zombie kind of hidden through the window there? I'd yeah, love I can't to see quite a larger tell. render. Yeah, yeah, I can't quite tell. All right, my next card here is Unblinking Observer. Yes, it's another blue card. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is one in a blue for a 2-1 homunculus at common, and it has tap, add blue, spend this mana only to pay a disturb cost or cast an instant or sorcery. And the reason I love this card so much is that it is a direct parallel to a card we got in Shadows, or actually it was an Eldritch Moon, called Curious Homunculus. And Curious Homunculus was one in a blue for a 1-1 homunculus. It was an uncommon, though, and it had tap, add colorless to your mana pool, spend this mana only to cast an instant or sorcery spell. And then if you had three or more instants in your instance or sorceries in your graveyard, you could transform it. And this is the best part. And the art between Curious Homunculus and the Unblinking Observer is almost the same. Like, they're almost certainly in the same library. Hmm. Uh, in any case, it transforms into Voracious Reader, which is an Eldrazi Homunculus, which, A, <laughs> just amazing type line. I love that. It has prowess. And it says instants and sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast, and it's a 3-4. So this thing gets ridiculous. Very excited to read books, apparently. And it also, the, the flavor text is phenomenal. It says, good books make you savor each word. I remember that thing being a beating and limited, too. Oh, yeah, it was phenomenal. Now, the Unblinking Observer, it's maybe not quite the uh, the same down spell slinging all-star, but it does have some, some of the same uh, themes, and the flavor text on it's pretty funny, too. My next card is actually uh, a multi-pack. It's all the full art lands. These are some of the most unique lands we've seen in a long time. I mean, they took a pretty bold approach for these. The, the grayed out blackened color scheme and having, uh, well, I mean, the full art treatment alone is great. These wouldn't have worked in anything. But now I, I, there's two cycles kind of. There's uh, one cycle and each of them features who uh, someone I'll call the Wanderer. It looks at the same person, each one, maybe like a nomad or something, walking on a path or something like that, carrying what appears to be a stick with uh, maybe a bag or a flag or a staff of some sort. Pretty cool uh, to kind of have this continued story shown through the full art lands. The other ones are all gorgeous too. Now, something that I wanted to note, what's up with the moon? I don't think we've learned this yet, and I know we've been talking all already about how the moon is out of sync somehow that was the whole point of the the celestis and the day night ritual they never actually say what the appearance of the moon has to do with it and the appearance of the moon in this set is very distinct it has a bunch of these almost like lens flares around it almost what you'd see if you're looking at an artifact of a, of a camera with a certain lens that I, don't know, I, I won't go into the physics of it, but sometimes you see that, like, if you look at a star through, like, a certain... Never mind, never mind. Um, but it, it looks cool. I was wondering if this is a, a product of the Eldrazi, uh, or if this is Emrakul being trapped inside that's doing this. It's pretty hard to not mention this. I mean, a bunch of scholars on Innistrad, such as, uh, what is it, Vadric, 
Uh, they, they study the moon. Moon studying is a big deal on Innistrad. Tamiyo came here just to do that. So what's up with those, those I don't know, spears in the sky? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually didn't pick up on that myself. I was busy stuck in the debacle of should they have done this in the first place with the whole like monocolored, like basically black, all swamps lands. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Because like the art looks, like the art on all of them basically looks like swamps. And when you remove colors from things and then in a game where colors matter a lot, it gets difficult to see them properly. Uh, so but, not as big a fan? Oh, I think they're gorgeous. I think they're fantastic art pieces. I just don't think they're great game pieces. Okay, okay, I buy that. One example, if you look at Wake to Slaughter, uh, that's a really good instance of seeing the moon in those really bizarre things. Wake to Slaughter is another one of my uh, my more preferred arts in this set. It's, it's just pretty sweet. Yeah, and then we also had those, this is like tangential, but the fact that they're like spiky is reminding me of this. Um, we also had all those like ice crystal thingies on like Ren and mm. Seven and like a bunch of other different cards that I don't think ever got an explanation either. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm looking at some of these other cards in the spoiler. Bat Whisperer, you can also see the spikes in the background. Lamholt Harrier, you can see the spikes in the background. I mean, this was clearly a part of the art direction. This wasn't just someone doing a one-off little thing. I don't know. Something's up. I don't think we have it fully explained yet. Ominous Roost is another one where you can see it. And uh, even Gavany Dongard. Maybe this is just what it looks like for the day-night cycle to be out of whack. It's an interesting way to show it, though. Kind of weird that they didn't mention it. Yeah, and as far as I know... Innistrad only has one moon, right? So it's it's it almost looks like I don't know if you remember like from Yu-Gi-Oh, but there was like a, a card called Swords of Revelation or something like that, where like in the show when a when somebody played that card, like all these swords showed up and just blocked everything, and it stopped anything from attacking for like three turns or something. And it kind of yeah. reminds me of that because it puts like almost a barrier of these like spiky things around the moon is what it's looking like is happening. Hmm. Unclear what that is though. Yeah, maybe we'll find out next step. Could be. Well, my next card here is, well, also blue, but it's not just blue. <laughs> okay, okay. This one is blue-white. It's Faithful Mending, and there are two main reasons why I included this card in this section. One is because it's it's a, actually just a, a very cool parallel to Faithless Looting, but also the art on this card is so awesome. Like, the the way, like, the couple is doing the thing and fixing the altar there, the way that the Avacyn crest is centered in in the frame with the candles kind of floating around in almost a perfect circle it's just such a and then all the colors of course it's it's just a beautiful piece of art and and i think uh i think it's i think it's phenomenal i really am tempted to get a print of this yeah i say do it seems pretty on brand for you uh blue white spirit player wise and i regret to inform you that i have actually selected a blue card as well for my next one uh devious cover-up now, this isn't a card I'm actually that high on. I prefer to not have this in my deck. The, the, the whole late game loop everything is a cool plan, and it's a very cool vector, but I haven't found a ton of success with it personally. I prefer a little more proactive approach to games, especially when white has card advantage in this format. I can't just pass up that opportunity to attack people. But Devious Cover-Up is worth a note. I mean, if you take a close look at this art here and you take a close look at this flavor, <laughs> well, I'll read the text out loud. Widowweaver's new Scarecrow seems to attract more crows than it scared off. Now, we have a few things conveyed pretty concisely here. This lady messing with the Scarecrow is a widow, and it seems to attract a bunch of scavengers. If you look at that Scarecrow, there's totally her husband in there. She definitely murdered him and stuffed him in a Scarecrow. Now, this is a fun little one-off story piece that, I don't know, it's just a, a nice little bit. It's, it's self-contained. Doesn't have to relate to anything else, but I think it's instances of cards like this that really sell the Innistrad story. Yeah, and we see this kind of stuff pretty regularly too. 
like these little one-off story pieces that aren't actually part of the story at all, but like very clearly tell a story in one card. And it's phenomenal. It's one of the one of my favorite parts about Magic is when you can find these little tidbits. It really provides world building for free. <laughs> like they're going to print this spell anyway, but this kind of shows that these characters, they keep leading their lives when we're not looking at like Chandra and Arlen Cord and, and Red and Seven. These everyday townsfolk, they have lives and uh, sometimes they're, they're pretty messed up. Sometimes they do some murder and uh, apparently get away with it. All right, and then my last card here is finally not a blue card. This is Silver Bolt, and it's the one mana artifact at common. Pay three, tap it, sack it, deal three to any target, and if it's a werewolf, you just destroy it. Now, the reason I like this card so much is that, A, it fits into the werewolf thing. I mean, it's a silver bolt. Like, we all know werewolves are hurt more by, like, silver bullets and things. There aren't guns as far as we know on Innistrad. So this is the next best thing to a silver bullet. It acts as a silver bullet in a lot of ways. Like, it sits on the board and then just kills off whatever you needed to kill. And then it is a bolt as well which it took ben forever to figure out but um it is also a bolt so like every little piece about this is just really really cool to me and i i like the way that they kind of similarly built a little kind of thing in in one card Mm -hmm. now something interesting about this some of these cards are clearly top-down designs um for example faithful mending they, they said, well, what does it look like when we take Faithless Looting and we start healing from that? What does it look like when we're coming back? Some of these are clearly bottom-up designs. For example, Devious Cover-Up. They knew they wanted to have a, uh, a two-blue-blue counterspell that shuffled stuff in, and they said, well, what does a Devious Cover-Up look like here? So my question was Silverbolt, is this top-down or bottom-up? I feel like they may have wanted to include a card that hosed werewolves, and then they probably also knew that they wanted, like, um, uh, flavorfully a silver bullet. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's perfect. I think it's probably both, right? I think that there was, it's a werewolf set. You need a silver bullet. Like that's just a common piece of werewolf lore in pretty much any mythology. Silver trumps werewolves. So they, they needed a way to do that. And then how do you incorporate that into Innistrad because there aren't guns? Okay, a crossbow. We, we've already established there are plenty of people who use crossbows on Innistrad. Let's, let's make it a bolt for that. Oh, wait, it's a bolt. Why don't we have it do the bolt thing? And in that case, I think I think it kind of builds itself. But I would expect they probably started with, we need a silver bullet. How do we get that into Innistrad? My last card here is one that I chose because it truly captures a feeling. And I love when cards feel fun to cast, feel fun to play, and they really capture, like, it's something exciting, something that happens, and you're like, oh boy, I get to cast this card? Oh, something awesome is going to happen. And in this case, the flavor and function of this card align perfectly Angel Fire Ignition. I love casting Angel Fire Ignition. It is so much fun. The art of this, uh, well, this is actually appears to be Rem Carolus, the kind of slayer. He's riding a griff, and this whole thing has been set aflame with apparently Angel Fire and is just bearing down. I just feel so bad for anything underneath what's about to happen here. Clearly, this is not about to work out very well for anyone that's not Rem Carolus or his, his griff there. And honestly, when you cast this card, doesn't it feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty awesome card. You come barreling at your opponent with all these extra keywords and a bunch of counters. And then, oh, hey, by the way, we can do it again. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it feels pretty it feels pretty aggressive in that way. Um, I'm curious, the, the flavor text for this card says, my angel is the flint and I am her steel. Very cool phrase. But typically on Innistrad in the past, like when, when somebody refers to my angel, they're referring to one of like the three 
or potentially four main angels, right? Avison, Sigarda, mm-hmm. Lisa, things like that. But there isn't really like hey, I don't would, forget Bruna. I'm, and, I'm not gonna allow that. Sorry, I know who? you did that. I saw it. <laughs> I know you did that just to piss me off. <laughs> but I I I can't. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to hear the end of that one. I can't <laughs> quite discern. I would guess Avison, but Avison's dead. I know there are a lot of people who are still following Avison, even though she's dead, but I can't quite pinpoint who Rem's angel is. I would guess Avison. I want to say Sigarda now that kind of everyone is following Sigarda, but then it wouldn't make much sense to say my angel. Now, I will say they brought Lisa back. So there, there's this really interesting side story. I recommend everyone check it out. It was one of my favorites. Uh, basically, this, this uh, woman kind of falling into the, a rough crowd of demonic apprentices and people trying to summon an, an ancient hell spirit. But uh, anyway, she's just kind of, she had it like her family was all killed off in the past by uh, ghouls and such, and she really wants a way to kind of claim some power. Uh, so she tries to summon this this demon. Turns out the summoning goes a little awry, but Lisa shows up. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, I've been bound to this demon for a while. I've been exiled from the world for ages, but apparently some people summoned uh, the demon, and now I'm back, and I'm here to hunt the demon. And uh, there's a whole side story. Lisa's a really cool card, uh, just on her own. I love the ability to just buy back, just slam a bunch of my creatures into my opponents, trade off, get them back. Uh, But from a flavor perspective, people wondered where this lost angel was for a long time. Uh, And now we know. She was kind of trapped in a void uh, where this angel, uh, or rather where this demon was apparently stuck too. And now she's back. So uh, Lisa and Sigarda are kind of running around doing angel things. Sadly, for those that don't know, uh, Bruna, Gisela, they, they met a bit of an unfortunate end at the hands of Thalia when they got turned into Brizella, the voice of nightmares. They, oh man, I'll never get over how they, they, they killed my girl Bruna. You know, and actually the way you explain that just, just reminded me and we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but I'm pretty sure didn't Nahiri destroy the Hell Vault? Yeah, yeah, the Hell Vault. The Hell Vault has been gone for a while. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, the Hell Vault was like this, basically a prison that Soren built for you know whatever he needed to imprison, and she destroyed it. So when you mentioned that Lisa was like locked away, at, that was the first thing I thought of was the Hell Vault. But oh, maybe she was in the Hell Vault somewhere. That that could have been. I don't know. Some things are still fuzzy, and I think that might be one of them. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for joining us at Flavortown. This was a really fun episode. I think Ben and I both enjoyed this a lot, so we hope you did as well. If you're interested in chatting more flavor-related things or just limited in general or maybe even a few constructed things, check out the Discord. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And once again, if you're interested in supporting us directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. We really, really, really do appreciate that. And uh, we should be getting out those draftchaff hero cards shortly. So be on the lookout for those if you are already a patron. And if you want to reach us outside of the Discord, you can do so on Twitter by finding me at Zach E. Hackett and Ben at Betafish1. And then, of course, you can find the podcast at DraftChaffPod, which is the best place to reach both of us simultaneously. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Later. So before we go, I mean, Bruna's at the forefront of my mind after she was so vigorously slighted. Uh, but I think you do actually, you have earned it. You do get to tell the story about how you managed to survive uh, a, an equipped Bruna. Yeah, so we were playing EDH last week, and it was uh, myself, Ben, and then a couple of Ben's friends. And we, I'm trying to remember who all the commanders were. I was playing Krenko. Ben was playing Bruna. I think one of the other players was playing Lathril. 
Lathril and uh, Shu Yun. Shu Yun, yeah. And we got to the point where it was me doing my thing, as Krenko does, and starting to build up goblins. At the time, I only had, like, maybe three goblins on board, but I was about to cast Krenko. And Ben was about to cast... He was, like, a turn or two away from casting Bruna. And so it got to this point where where somebody at the table was like, wait, who's the biggest threat right now? And we basically <laughs> broke it down like this. I was currently the biggest threat, but in two turns, it would flip to Ben being the biggest threat. And at that point, he'd probably just run away with the game because it's very hard to stop Bruno once she gets to attack once or block once. And so that was kind of where we sat. And long story short, uh, basically, I think everybody was about dead. And then I was like, I think I can kill Ben. Ben got to attack with Bruna, killing one other player who wasn't me, and brought himself up to 90 life. Bruna had Annihilator and de- uh, Double Strike and Lifelink and all these things. I was like, I'm pretty sure I can kill you. I had Krenko on board with the ability to generate something like 36 goblins by my next turn. Oh, no, um... Something like that. I don't know. I, I had a lot of goblins. and You had a lot of... You had more goblins than you had goblin tokens, I think, so... Yeah, and I had... Um, I had this uh, in, this red enchantment that basically says whenever a creature... Or it might be whenever a goblin you control deals combat damage, you add a, a particular counter to this enchantment, and then you can remove five of those counters to deal five damage to a creature or a player. And so I was, like, uh, you know, trying to figure out between that and all the goblins I have... And I had a card in my hand, which was a one-mana spell, sorcery speed, that says deal damage to tar- to any target equal to the number of goblins you control. And then I also had a card in hand that had haste and had power toughness equal to the number of goblins you control. I forgot to play that before combat, so <laughs> that didn't help me. But yeah, I managed oh. to kill Ben from 90. Um, he blocked with Bruna. Uh, the Lathral player actually killed the enchantment that gave Bruna lifelink, so that helped a lot. And yeah, it was, it was great. And then I died cause I, I did my math <laughs> wrong and failed to leave something back in order to, to win the next turn. But it was pretty great. Well, you did kill me and that's, I suppose what matters. I think I actually could have killed both of you, but I needed the other player's cooperation to get rid of that card on Bruna's side. So, <laughs> you know, whatever we earned it, I guess. 